Welcome to Novel Discourse, where we discuss great stories and how they're told. My name is Sam, here with Andy. Andy, how are you doing this evening? Pretty decent, man. I'm in uh, day five of being confined to this room with COVID. So oh, that's right. a little stir-crazy, but uh, I'm excited to talk about this movie. I'm very excited. This is a great yes. film, and I watched it today. Well, sorry for sorry that you have COVID. Hope you're pretty asymptomatic. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, I, I had the booster. I have almost... I didn't even really know I had it. It was and you work like out a, a lot. Yeah, you're, you're really healthy, so That's, yeah, yeah. Like between like my lifestyle and having like the most up to date possible vaccine, I was pretty triple covered. I was. It was probably dumb of me to go to that Cowboys game since they lost. It feels like a regret, but had they won, I probably wouldn't feel bad about it. But since they lost the game, I attended. I'm like, damn it, I shouldn't have gone to that. That was yeah. Dumb. But so yeah, I've been confined to this room in order to keep my pregnant wife from contracting it, which she has not. So uh, victory there. Good stuff. Um, well, I'm really excited to talk about Whiplash. Before we get started on that, I'm kind of freaking out. You just said we're, we're talking about Whiplash. Is that what we're talking about? Uh, no, we're talking about Nightcrawler. I, Nightcrawler. Okay, yeah. thank God. I was like, damn, I haven't watched Whiplash in like three years. This is going to be really difficult for me <laughs> to like participate in. Like, hey, two, com- <laughs> two compound words, and you know I always have Whiplash on my mind. Well, and they're both awesome. Like, they're both right. incredible, so they, they both definitely belong on this podcast, and it would totally make... I know you love that movie, so I was like, it would make sense for us to do an episode on Whiplash, and I was like, it would it would also make sense for me to like just take Whiplash in an ear and like translate it to Nightcrawler. Right. But, While you're talking, I was just like, I have done zero prep. I kind of remember most of the plot points. I don't remember the character names. I'm like, I'm going to have to vehemently Google over this. Yeah. No, you're you're safe. You're safe. No, we're talking about... We're talking about uh, Nightcrawler. I almost just called it Whiplash again. Here we go. But, man. So, first of all, when this movie first came out, Nightcrawler, um, I was a little bit bummed because it came out in 2014, right when superhero movies went from kind of the not so great kind of sony era of superhero films to like i feel like studios started kind of hitting their stride with superhero films and i thought it was going to be a standalone about the x-men nightcrawler the one who can teleport and so i was a little bit excited about that but then when i actually watched this nightcrawler i am definitely glad that it is what it is because this is a great movie this this is an incredible film. Um, this is the directorial debut for Dan Gilroy, who uh, <laughs> Dan Gilroy has one of the strangest Hollywood careers ever. He yep. basically spent like twenty years writing just trash movies. Like he wrote Free Jack, which I think I may be the only human under the age of forty that has seen Free Jack, but it's so bad. It's a cyber thriller from the early nineties when we were all just like using the internet as a plot device. Uh, he wrote Two for the Money, which is maybe the worst Matthew McConaughey movie and the worst Al Pacino movie ever made. He just, And he wrote The Bourne Legacy in 2012, which is like the weakest <laughs> Bourne movie there is. And then out of nowhere, two years after that, he gets to write and direct this movie. And dude, I'll use the term. I think it's a masterpiece. Like this is an incredible film. It's super gritty. It does something that I think is really difficult to do, which is like... It is the story of basically evil triumphing. Like, this is the story of a a mentally ill, like, evil person who just, like, uses their powers of evil to triumph over good. And you're kind of along for the ride and, like, weirdly kind of, like, you find yourself a little, not rooting for, I'm not going to use the term root for, but you're, like, expecting him to, like, you're like, how's he going to get out of this one? Because you expect him to kind of win. Um, it, it is an incredible 
picture of how someone with zero morality can like get ahead in in the system that we have set up in our society where like everyone has compromised themselves a little bit especially in the in the industry that he chooses to go forward in which is like the media news and especially like big city news it's it's incredible and the details of this film we'll get into all of it but it down to like the score of this film is an incredible choice it's all very like upbeat happy music um because it's kind of like the the soundtrack inside of the main character's head rather than what you would normally put to this movie which is like dark brooding horrible music i'm a little disappointed that you brought up the fact that the music plays what is going through Jake Gyllenhaal's head and not what should be playing because that was a point that I had brought to the table and I was like, man, I I, I was going to be super clever on this pod bringing that up. <laughs> so you beat me to it, which I think is a really interesting point. I, I was trying to think about if you wrote this movie as a novel, what would that look like? And I'm 100% convinced that this would be a this would be a first person unreliable narrator novel because yeah, this is like an American Psycho style, like very much. You can't really tell if what's happening is really happening, especially when it comes to like his dialogue. Like the way he delivers dialogue in this movie is this really like cringy word vomit of just like regurgitated buzzwords that he's learned that people like hearing. Um, the scene I'm thinking of right off the bat is where he takes the scrap metal that he's stolen from all over the Los Angeles to the construction boss, and he asks for a job, and he goes into this, he kind of like clearly like all kind of psychos do, takes an assessment of his target and tries to like kind of chameleon himself to what he thinks this man will be into, and so he's like, you know how us millennials are, like we expect to be catered to, but I'm not like that. I want to work hard, you know. I've always my my mantra is you can't but win the lottery if you don't earn the money to buy a ticket. Like, oh, he's and, and Jake Gyllenhaal delivers it in such a way that you believe he has been around someone like that. Like, you're like this is so personal and so on the nose that you're like you've encountered this human before, which is the best kind of acting. In my you know opinion. what it reminded me of is we've both been in sales. You're still in sales. It reminds me of. What, two things one when you're getting a cold call and somebody's trying to act like they're not selling you something they're trying to form that relationship or form that partnership and they're yeah. they're kind of they're clearly kind of reading off something but they're also trying to draw upon what little personal skills they have and you yeah. can see right through it you know it when you see it the second thing that it reminds me of is have you ever been approached by somebody who's who's pitching you a pyramid scheme Oh, absolutely. Yeah. This this guy would thrive at Amway or Herbalife because yeah. he has no – most people in the world operate with like a degree of shame or like discomfort with making others uncomfortable and that keeps them from being able to do jobs like door-to-door salesperson or like the person at the grocery store that tries to sell you a bamboo pillow. But this guy, Lou Bloom, would have zero – issues with that because he does not feel that since he had since he lacks all empathy whatsoever he doesn't even it doesn't even dawn on him that he's making you uncomfortable while right. he's making you uncomfortable yeah i think that's one of the most interesting things about his character is he really down to his conversations with people his actions around people no amount of negative interaction gets him to like understand that i oh i maybe i shouldn't do that right i one scene that comes to mind was one of the first news stories that he goes to film, he goes and there's this old lady sitting out front and she's clearly shaken and he starts asking her questions and she answers them and, and he's like, can you say that again? And she basically is like, no, absolutely not. Like I'm, I'm 
like I'm concerned about my neighborhood, right? Yeah. And he just is like, but it's for the news. Like he just yeah. is not going to give up. And even in this like incredibly awkward situation, he does that throughout the entire film. And you'll also see that he has instances where he pushes people and when they don't give him what he wants, like again, a very recognizable trait of a psychopath, the mask will slip a little bit and this like jovial, you know, kind of witty person that slips away and the the kind of scary monster comes out. Like uh, when he puts uh, the news director, the very compromising situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And demands to have sex with her. Like um, interesting tidbit. That is actually Dan Gilroy's wife. Uh, yeah. Rina Russo, uh, and she's in a bunch of his movies. He also did a movie recently in 2019 with Jake Gyllenhaal and Rene Russo again, uh, Velvet Buzzsaw, which is kind of a horror movie that is a send up of modern the modern art scene. And Jake Gyllenhaal plays just like the most insufferable art critic on the planet, and it is again very perfectly done. It's it was way less well received than this movie, and I think deservedly so, but. It's again another film where he men- he he clearly works very well with the two of them and really likes the way that they deliver their characters and I agree. Yeah, this movie won- by the way you talk about being well received. It won I believe it won the Oscar for best original screenplay. Is that accurate? It mm-hmm. And it had a budget of 8.5 million. It and then it had 50.3 million in the box office. So I think this does fall into the category of a blockbuster technically. Yeah, yeah. Um, this really came out of nowhere. Like, I remember hearing about this as, like, a movie that was on, like, the festival circuit, and then I saw it kind of on a whim. I had no idea what it was about, and it pulls you in really quickly. Um, so the movie kind of begins with, uh, we're introduced to this character of Lou Bloom. We see him with bolt cutters trying to cut into a fence, and a security guard accosts him, and he's very, like, neighborly. He's like, oh... I got lost, There's the gate was open, there was no sign, and he looks down at the security, and again, there's so many great uh, details in the cinematography of this movie, but he just glances real quick at the security guard's watch, and then it cuts immediately to like a far away shot, and you see Jake Gyllenhaal attack the guy for like a split second, and then it just cuts to Jake Gyllenhaal smiling, listening to the radio, driving down the freeway, and he's looking, at, and he's got the security guard's watch on his wrist. And so you're immediately you immediately are like introduced to this dichotomy of like this very like articulate, friendly on the outside guy who's clearly willing to like devolve very quickly into like a rabid level of violence that other people are not prepared for. And so he's in Los Angeles, he's a petty thief, he doesn't really have any like ability to get a job, and he encounters an automotive wreck on the four oh five and he pulls over which, again, this is the move of a psychopath, dude. Like, you encounter a fiery mm-hmm. auto wreck and you pull over to just get out of your car and, like, look at it. Like, yeah. there's something wrong with you there. Like, I'm already, like, the kind of person that, like, I don't – I hate it when people are, like, rubbernecking at an accident and it, like, slows traffic down. It makes me so upset. I'm like, you people are gross. Keep moving. I don't want to be late somewhere because you want to look at, you know, violence. He gets out of his car and encounters – like freelance photojournalist stringers, people that like kind of roll around the big cities because local news stations don't have enough personnel to be everywhere at once, especially in a place like Los Angeles. There's stories happening all over this massive metro area. And so there are freelancers that kind of like listen to police radios and like show up at crime scenes or accident scenes and get uh, video that they then sell kind of like freelance paparazzi to uh, local news stations and he watches this kind of happen and it it kind of piques his interest he's like oh like that's something i could do so he sort of begins to like 
worm his way into this and he realizes his he's going to need a little bit of money to get into this uh this business so he waits down by the beach by the Santa Monica boardwalk steals a guy's road bike and takes it into a pawn shop and i love that scene of the like spiel he's giving the pawn shop owner he's like this bike has 37 gears i won the tour of mexico on this bike and the pawn owner who out of all the people that like you will never be able to bullshit like pawn shop owner has heard every fucking story in the book and he immediately is like no bike has 37 gears mate i'll give you 300 for it or whatever so he gets like some bullshit camera a little police scanner What's funny about that scene is it's he's one of about three people in the entire film that doesn't at least partially buy into Lou, sure. the main character's BS. And the other people that don't buy into his BS are like low-level cops or the construction boss at the at the beginning of the film. And I think it just shows like the people that work with manipulators and see liars yeah. every day, like at the pawn shop or obviously cops, aren't going to buy into that. But like... People high up in the news organization or other people that Lou interacts with on the street uh, in his industry, they are kind of like, they might think he's a little weird, but they don't understand that he's 100% not a real person. Or at least, da- or they don't understand he's dangerous to that level right. for sure. And there's there's two kinds of people that Lou tends to like target, and that's people that... Even if they can see through his bullshit, they will profit by working with him, and so they 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 too are exploiters, and so they don't care. Like Nina is a perfect example of this. Like she's very upfront with him about like, here's what we want on the news: crime done against white people, preferably by poor people of a different race. Like to right. put it simply, what we want in our news broadcast is uh, a woman running down the street screaming with her throat cut. And you're immediately like, holy shit, gross, dude. Like, oh, what a disgusting industry. And then he then needs a an employee and he brings in Raz Ahmed, who is another person who is like so easy to exploit because he has no choice. And so Lou is able to like bamboozle him because the guy is like homeless, like just needs anything and Lou's his only shot. And so Lou's able to just like basically abuse him throughout the entire movie. It's it's very it's a disturbing portrait of someone who again like it shows you that like in especially in certain areas of our economy and our society like if you are truly a person that has zero scruples like you can get ahead because it's like designed a lot of the like defenses of the system are built around like oh the decent people are operating here like that's right. the there are no like formal safeguards all the safeguards are built around like well you know everyone's everyone's trying to do their best not to be an asshole and then it's like oh no like (laughs) there are sharks in these waters for sure and lou is definitely one of them did you hear what john gilroy said the theme that he wanted to touch on in the in the movie is no 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 so this is not only super accurate but it will like kind of shape your understanding of the film and you're like oh that's that 100 percent makes sense and that is he wanted to Explore the dichotomy between unemployment and capitalism. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I mean... That definitely makes sense. Between Lou... Lou is kind of in the same position that... Is it Rick? Rick is... Yeah. Rizamo's character. Yeah. Who, by the way, he does a phenomenal job as well just playing this like... You can tell that this kid has been undereducated and has some some amount of wits to him, but he's very unsure of himself, has no confidence, and it's just like prime for... You talk about like the herbal life or being sold just snake oil, like 
hundred percent is exactly the kind of person that they would be looking for. Yeah, just um, lost searching the same pr- people that cults get a hold of, like all those, all those groups who are looking for vulnerable humans. Rick is like the archetype of who they target for sure. It feels a little bit like those videos where you see a cobra in India with like a, a like a mouse or a rat that they put in there, and you're just like, yeah, I know by the end of this video, like that snake is gonna eat that animal. Oh yeah. And you yeah, just, absolutely. like, the first time that Rick sits down with Lou, you're just like, you, you know within, like, two or three lines of dialogue, like, this poor kid, he has no yeah. idea what he's getting into. Yeah. Paparazzi in general, I think, is kind of viewed as this, like, scummy profession. Like, you kind of have to lose your, your human empathy to do it, like, because you're violating the privacy of people in, like, their worst moments. Um, but we quickly see that if that is what it takes to just you know, be in this industry, Lou is tailor made for it because he will go so much farther than any of these other guys. Um, so it starts with him. Like there's a, there's a, like a, like a break and entering. I think there's like a strong arm robbery in a house and Lou like goes around back where the cops are and he like goes into the people's home and like finds out the names of the people that were the victims by looking at their mail, just like truly invades their privacy. He, on he moves their family photos to surround be surrounded by the bullet holes so that yeah. when he films it it looks more it paints a more dramatic photo which like i'm sure that's how like we have seen like kind of these high level uh scandals in the journalism world where like someone gets caught making up the details or fabricating an entire story right um there was a very famous case of this in i think it was the late 80s at a big paper in baltimore where there was this really famous story of this like nine-year-old kid who was living, who was addicted to heroin and he was living with two heroin dealer parents in the ghetto. And of course, like at the height of the crack bin, at the height of the crack epidemic in America, like this America ate this shit up, like war on drugs, Nancy Reagan's reading this shit in front of the white house, just being like, see, like this is what it's all about. Right. And it turned out it was entirely fabricated. And when they broke it down, it's like, it never starts there, right? Like, it always starts with, like, I got to the house fire, and there was a, do- a half-charred doll out of the frame, and I just moved it into the frame because it made it just a little bit better of a picture. Or, like, I right. colored someone's quote just a little bit. And then by the end of it, you're inventing human beings or entire stories or I was here when this helicopter got shot or whatever. You know, we've seen, like, how crazy that gets. Like, Well, and, and um, that's kind of a microcosm of how... Lou's story is in this movie is he starts with a small the small manipulation of the crime scene to get a better photo and then it slowly escalates and then by the end of the movie he's essentially orchestrating crime to happen in front of him <laughs> like yeah, murders and, to happen in front of him and then on the other end of it Nina is fully kind of coloring these events like we see there's a there so to to give the listeners kind of color here the kind of culminating incident of this film is that uh, Lou arrives before the cops do at this home, this really nice house in Granada Hills, which is like a really high-priced area of L.A. It's where, like, you know, millionaires live. And as he's walking up this long, gated driveway, um, some dudes with guns, like, run out of the house, get in an SUV and drive away. And he goes into the house and... The husband and wife have both been brutally execution-style murdered in their palatial mansion with shotguns at close range. He gets, like, all this brutal footage. They get out of there. He gets the license plate of the murderer's car but does not give that information to the police because his thinking is, like, okay, now I can go find 
where this these guys are, like track them to the perfect location, and then call the cops, and then I'll get that footage too of this like incredible takedown. Um, and so again, he's like manipulating the entire situation. Well, of course, Nina is on the other end of this, his kind of connection to the news world, and she's under pressure. You know, her bosses are they're like the fifth or sixth rated news station in LA. She's going to get fired. It sweeps week, so she's like. This is incredible because it's like ghetto crime from the ghetto creeping into the suburbs, like white family that's very well off, worked really hard, has all this money, getting just brutally murdered in their home for no reason. That's the kind of shit that sells. And then after the events of this movie, you see a moment where a guy, another guy that works at the station comes up to her and is like, hey, like, you know, the cops have done investigating and they found like. 20 kilos of cocaine in this house like this guy was not some you know right. innocent do-gooder who got his house broken into he was clearly a drug a drug dealer who got right it was it was how 99 percent of the real murders happen where it's like it's not random it was somebody who yeah. knew somebody likely and it's likely that both people involved were and i don't want to say this for like domestic cases but when it comes to like drug cases obviously that, that kind of are, murder yeah these are not most likely not innocent people like right. that were yeah so and her reaction to that is like bury that shit because yeah. that's not the story. The story is ghetto crime sneaking into the suburbs and he's like that's your I mean what are you talking about? Like that's a lie. She's like no, like that's just, you know, we're here to get ratings. And like it highlights something that like I think everyone acknowledges and knows but like we kind of allow to exist and that's that like our news has effectively become more about entertainment than information and people watch it to be captivated rather than to be informed because real news is incredibly boring like they used to fit all the news for the entire world (laughs) in a 24-hour period into 45 minutes to an hour every night walter cronk walter uh walter cronkite would read the news now have like 10 24-hour news networks like the idea that there's enough news that all of the that time could be filled with information and realistic like informative valuable analysis is crazy like that's not true we didn't grow more events like we're literally just manufacturing you know outrage Outrage, and quote-unquote analysis which is that's exactly what we're watching nina do um and she's hitched her wagon to this just like total demented psycho and the culmination of this film really is that uh lou does try to set up this arrest effectively he calls the cops they show up there's a shootout and there's a race through the streets and right before this happens rick kind of realizes finally he has leverage he's like dude like you're doing shit that's wild illegal like you can't be withholding information from the cops like i want more money if i'm going to be involved in shit like this and so when the the big chase goes down, there's a crash and Lou's like, Hey, you know, go to the other side of the car and get this angle. And Rick gets blasted in the chest from close range with a handgun. And as he's like filming Rick's dying moments, Lou Lou is filming Rick. Yeah. 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 He's like, you knew he was alive. And he's like, I couldn't let you, you know, compromise my company. You know, I can't trust you. You know, you're just like, Oh my God, dude. It's so, it's, and that's not the first time in the film that he like kind of directly causes someone's at least critical injury because he also cuts the brake lines on a rival group of a stringer's van and they're involved in this horrible, you know, fiery car crash like it is horrific, man. Yeah. So because it is like it is a graduation it doesn't all happen at once. He starts out, you're like, okay, I wouldn't do that, but I know that there are people that do do that and then it slowly just keeps going, keeps going until you're just like 
we have created and enabled a monster collectively as a society by allowing this to exist. And he's not only not, you know, punished, he's rewarded. Like at the end, the last scene of this movie is that he now owns a thriving business with multiple vans. And he's like talking to his, all his new interns. And he's like, remember, I would never ask you to do something I wouldn't do myself. And they all load up in the vans and drive off into the LA night, probably to do much worse shit eventually. Like, you know what crazy. this movie reminds me of is if somebody had to ask me like what what is Nightcrawler compare it I would say it's Taxi Driver meets Black Swan. Yeah, that's a good that's a good comparison because it's it, it is kind of about the pursuit of greatness um, where you have this incredibly driven individual that by the nature of the environment in which they're competing in, they have to be cutthroat and they have to be a little bit crazy. And as their level of competition rises, they have to continue to escalate their level of crazy in order to succeed, right? But then you also have this protagonist who is not a well-adjusted individual in society. Lou is completely antisocial, as we've talked about earlier with some of his mannerisms, like he... He probably has consumed audiobooks and articles online, self-development on how to win arguments or negotiate. He negotiates a ton in the film. He has cobbled this personality together. That's a, it's a Frankenstein personality. It's 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 a it does not definitely it is not a true reflection of a, a real person. It's missing the je ne sais quoi. It's a not he he is not. There's definitely an uncanny valley, like where you like all the pieces are there, but. There's something missing. Like I can't, I can't quite put my finger on why you're not right. a normal human, for sure. but you're not and for sure. That's very similar to uh, Robert Nero's character on Taxi Driver, whose name is escaping me. But where you're just like, where did this guy come from? Like, why is he like that? Now in Taxi Driver, they answer that question. They tell you his backstory. He is a war veteran in Vietnam. He has PTSD. In this film, they deliberately yep. they deliberately leave that out. They do not get in his backstory. When you meet him, he's in this like really crappy studio apartment in sunny L.A. and all these glitzy and glamoury people are around him, but he's clearly not doing well, both mentally and economically. And I do think that that was, again, a very deliberate decision by the writer because this being a film about, again, the dichotomy of being unemployed and capitalism is, I think it speaks to people getting lost yeah. in the shuffle. Jake Gyllenhaal's character in this film, to start it, is 100% lost in the shuffle. You you don't know who he is. He's wearing very plain clothes. They don't talk about his family. They don't introduce any of his friends. His apartment's very plain. I think that was all incredibly intentional to be like, he is a he is a nobody. He Both in personality and in possessions and in relationships, he just doesn't exist. If if you are not succeeding in capitalism, you don't exist. Well, and, and I I think it's uh there's something to be said for the idea that like depending on how successful someone like Lou gets and how much time passes, like that'll just become part of the like mythos. Like look at people like Ray Kroc or Mark Zuckerberg, who it's publicly acknowledged did really horrible, morally bankrupt shit as part of their kind of rise to king of the empire. And that's just kind of written in as like, yeah, dude, they were willing to throw elbows in the paint, you know? Like, that's what it takes. You you gotta be willing to ruin the lives of someone who actually had a good idea right. to own a hamburger-based empire. Like, that's, that is definitely like the dark side of, um, and you know, I don't want anyone to get the, the 
uh, idea that Sam and I are, you know, sitting here being like, get rid of, throw out capitalism, but like, this is definitely right. like the the dark side. Everything has a bad point, and this is definitely like the dark half of that equation. Is that like in a system that truly turns, you know, how much money you've earned and how financially successful you've been into kind of a quasi religion and a scoreboard as to how good of a human you are. People like this that take that into their soul and say, great, I will develop zero other pieces of my personality other than the ability to generate economic wealth for myself. There's a blind spot there in the system where it will look at that and read that as like, yep, successful member of society. And, you know, as a human being, you can look at a person like Lou and be like, oh, absolutely not. Like missing, you know, a bunch of important files in this particular program, my guy. So, yeah, it's terrifying. And I can't say enough about how well this movie shot and how well Jake Gyllenhaal plays this role. It is terrifying. Like. I really do think I would be like a little – it would take me a good five minutes of meeting Jake Gyllenhaal in real life to like not be – where's Lou Bloom? You know what I mean? Because I've seen him so realistically enact those feelings and, and personality traits that I would have to like hang around him for like a good two minutes before I'd be like, okay, that's not him. He's a real Yeah, person. speaking of but, the yeah. – when you talked about figures of capitalism that we know weren't good people per se, um, and I'll put that lightly – who is that person we were talking about who has that really crazy, like, estate in California, like, up in the mountains that was, like, in charge? I think he had a bunch of newspapers, I believe. Oh, you're talking about William Randolph Hearst. Yeah, you had a bunch of stuff on the other day when we were talking about him. Yeah, just, like, the inventor of yellow—I mean, and it relates to this. He was the inventor of yellow journalism. Um, you know, one of his most famous quotes of all time was, like, gentlemen i'll invent the war you fight it those kind of things like this dude basically made the the spanish-american war happen like personally um and he definitely profited the dude had his own private zoo you can go tour his house today he had a an entire pool that was made of solid gold a swim almost olympic size swimming pool um yeah and i mean that's that was definitely like that era before we like got to kind of the new deal and we kind of pulled the reins back uh, to a certain degree with like, okay, we need to like clamp down on monopolies. There needs to be protections for laborers. Um, there was the robber baron era of this country where there was like six guys that owned like 90% of all of America's, you know, industrial output. And those guys were not good people. I mean, Getty, Rockefeller, they made it their mission at the end of their life. And we're watching kind of Bill Gates do this now where it's like, put your name on like a billion charities, all the museums. The Sackler family did this tremendously for years where they made 30, 40, $50 billion selling Oxycontin to every American they could. And then like every wing at the modern art museum, every, you know, new thing at the MoMA had to be the Sackler. Dude, you know who hates, you know who hates the Sacklers? George Rock. Our boy, dude. I just saw it. Yeah, dude. I saw he dropped the new hour long part three to the, I hope video. we become big enough someday where we can have George Rockall Schmidt on as a guest or a permanent host. Gosh. That would be awesome. That would be awesome, dude. I love his his vitriol for them is so like because I, I vibe with that so hard. Like that's right in my alley. So I'm just like, dude, you can articulate my my own hatred for them so much better than I can, so go off, King. Like dude. And he's got a cool lava lamp to go exactly, along. Exactly, dude. And he wears that sweet robe a lot of times. Like it's great. Shout out to George Rockall Smith, man. The, the most underrated channel on all of YouTube. He's getting far. more free ads. Like, we always say no free ads, but we're going to, we definitely stand George Rockall Schmidt. So, 
Oh, absolutely. Dude, if you produce art that good, you can get free ads on Novel Damn Discourse. Straight. For sure. Yeah, man. Nightcrawler um, is a trip, and uh, I, I I wanted to go back and talk for a second about how I, I was saying earlier that this is a, if this was a novel, this would be a first-person novel. The music tips it off, obviously. There will be scenes where he's coming up to a really violent accident, and there's, like, people dying. Instead of playing sad music or unsettling music it'll play like not triumphant music but like upbeat kind of like a a good moment is happening right (laughs) and it's really weird and it's something you don't quite notice right away but like what is his partner's name rick when rick dies it starts to play this angelic music like instead of it being sad it's a happy moment for him like he's finally rid of this employee that may or may not be paid more than $75 a night. Crazy. Yeah, man, it it breaks my heart because you it's something that again, like you mentioned it, from the moment they meet in that diner, you just know that this is the mouse in the cobra cage, like nothing good will come of you interacting with a guy like Lou. He's going to use you, maybe bring harm to you. And yet there's this brief moment of hope where he realizes he gets enough knowledge of the situation and gains enough street smarts about what's going on that he's like, okay, maybe he can turn Lou into the cops or he can leverage this situation to at least get his, like get enough money to get out of this situation or something. Cause you're rooting for Rick. He's like kind of, right. we don't see any negative aspects to Rick. Right. Um, and yet that's what makes it so much worse when that moment comes where Rick dies right in front of with with the the camera staring into his eyes which is just such a gross image and then he takes that footage back to the news station and it's such a beautifully acted and written scene of Rene Russo, Nina and Jake Gyllenhaal's Lou Bloom watching the footage of Rick die and they are like sexually turned on by this footage like they're like standing in front of the monitor it's like a depth of field shot with like the monitor behind them and their uh profile shot both of them looking into each other's eyes and they're like this is amazing lou and he's like oh i've got more where that came from or something and they're like about to just like jump each other like right in the middle of this newsroom you're just like oh god dude this is fucking horrible but again like dramatic swell to the music it's like they've accomplished this great amazing feat like it's a bizarre it's so well done like i have to give props to dan i can't imagine the fact that he had this inside of him while he was writing free jack in 1992 is incredible that should give every every person who thinks their writing sucks like dude there have been people that have written such terrible shit that have gone on to write amazing masterpieces so keep going man you never know (laughs) dude you truly never know yeah he god it's it's man this is not the first episode that this has happened where we are when we'll talk about an amazing piece and then we go read the who who directed it who wrote it who produced it and you're like wildly surprised at like oh they you know they wrote remember the titans but then they literally wrote nothing else of note like or yeah oh they wrote you know x crazy novel or crazy movie and oh they wrote like 20 other things and they're all complete garbage um not yeah dan dan's done three he's gotten to direct three movies he did this uh and then he wrote kong skull island so you know he's down for a check dude he will take a check i'll give you that he didn't direct that though and then he wrote and directed uh roman j israel esquire which i have never seen i've never seen that Um, it's got denzel Denzel, right 
Denzel and Colin Farrell. Um, it's a, it's like a movie about a lawyer in Los Angeles. Um, I've never seen it, but I, I've heard it was okay. Like I, I knew some people that saw it that liked it. And then he did Velvet Buzzsaw, um, which again was Jake Gyllenhaal and his wife. Um, I would, I just like, no, I don't, I don't know if it's an episode, but I would love for you to watch Velvet Buzzsaw and tell me what you think. Cause it's kind of, again, same oh, director, you've seen same it. writer. Oh yeah. Yeah. Many times. I mean, I'm, I'm like a junkie for like, uh, kind of art adjacent. I'm not, I, I cannot create art and I cannot, I'm not educated enough to like go to a museum and like look at a painting and be like, ah, yes, the je ne sais quoi, the post-impressionist era, but Things that dumb down art to like a digestible form, I do really like, and I I'm a very very fascinated by the modern art world of like the concept of like things being declared art because up until like this is kind of a tangent, but up until like a century ago, it was very obvious what was art and what was not art. Like art was like you know the Sistine Chapel ceiling and like the Mona Lisa, and then like one day in the twenties is a very famous thing. Uh, this artist took a urinal off a wall and put a signature on it and put it in a museum and was like, this is art. And it was like, he was doing that on purpose. He was like, it was like a very... I'm trying to prove a point. Yeah, that like art is a subjective term. Anything can be art depending on who's, what perspective is perceiving it as art, who declares it art, things like that. Um, But that gave birth to this like incredibly weird pop art modern movement where like anything is art, and therefore nothing is art. And uh, Velvet Buzzsaw explores kind of the world. It's all set around Art Basel in Miami, which is this giant, horrible yep, Instagram event of, uh, of modern art where it's like, yeah, it's a giant uh, chrome ball that spills blood every 10 minutes. It's going to sell for $50 million. And you're just like, no one, you're convinced all of it's Emperor's New Clothes. Like no yeah. one really gets it. So everyone has to pretend they do. Um, it's like the Brian Regan skit about about art where he's like when you talk about realism it's like here's a bowl of fruit here's a and here's a painting of a bowl of fruit they look identical it's great art and then you move down the line and it's like a Picasso like who decides that a Picasso is great or not like clearly that is not a well-drawn human right (laughs) right for sure it's very confusing and like and don't get me wrong like i can look at a picasso and be like there's something very amazing about that to me and i can't but i even i don't know how much of it's amazing because i've been instructed that it's amazing right right? like i i'm it's at this point it's impossible for me to disconnect that and there's a great moment in velvet buzzsaw where john malkovich who is kind of the i'm trying to think of a contemporary artist maybe a damien hurst would be a good comparison like a a humongous contemporary artist who every work they do sells for a billion dollars but it's all like if you weren't into art you'd be like that's shitty yeah Um, me he has a great moment where he invites this art dealer into his studio and they're walking across this giant warehouse it's a studio there's a canvas over on the wall but on the way to the canvas there's a pile of three trash bags in the middle of the floor and it really is just trash like he's cleaned up some stuff and put it in these trash bags and the art dealer stops at the trash bags and kneels down he's looking at it from different angles like it's fucking incredible and john malkovich turns around and goes thanks it's not art and they just keep walking and that's like kind of the you know the subtext of the film is that like these people are all full of shit um exit through the gift shop dude i mean yeah i mean that's that was my kind of entrance to the art world which is super embarrassing anyone that like actually loves art would shit on me so hard for being like into banksy at all but like but i I do know that oh dude i love that documentary we've had like 
in our lifetimes, we probably, you and I probably had like 300 conversations about Banksy, just like, yeah. or like, oh, look what he did and things like that. Just even if it's a two minute conversation, but I would say that of those, you know, 300 conversations, you have probably initiated 298 of them. Yeah, you, you I mean, I love Exit to the Gift Shop. I, I stand him hard. I love his whole shtick. I fall for it hard. I am your average mediocre white man. That's That 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 I definitely fall into. But yeah, Velvet Buzzsaw, also directed by and written by Dan Gilroy, also shares like the two most prominent members of this cast. Um, so I would love to hear your thoughts on that if you get yeah. the chance to watch it. It's I'll kind of a horror movie, yeah. um, but it's good. It's really good. I, I, I agree with you. Like exploring a easy exploitable system like art like evening news filming like in this in in nightcrawler like can't that, wait for dan gilroy's cool. nft movie because that's Dude. gonna in 10 years we're gonna get that <laughs> i i'm almost thinking yeah get dan gilroy involved but i if you want to do a drama but if you want to do a dramedy you know we got to call up our boy uh adam mckay you know, Adam Dude, get, McKay would just get Adam McKay on this and have, have Jake Gyllenhaal play just like an insufferable crypto bro who's like a fucking psycho willing to like ruin everyone financially, destroy the U.S. economy so that he can, you know, peddle tiny animated gifs of ducks wearing sombreros or something. <laughs> like, I love it. I'll, I'll watch that movie for sure. Dude, I this movie Nightcrawler is going back to that for a second is just if you told me that hey there's this movie i have for you it is directed by the guy who directed kong skull island and two for the money and it's about a estranged awkward person who goes around filming at night footage for news studios that they can repurpose and for you know suburban housewives to freak out about that would just sound like one of the most difficult to film and boring scripts right i do amaze i know this is a writing podcast but I'm amazed by a few things about this about this uh, piece. Obviously, the dialogue is incredible. There is no showing, or sorry, there's no telling. It's all showing, right? Mm-hmm. There's no asides about Jake Gyllenhaal's character. If this movie is an hour and a half, uh, actually, it's 117 minutes. Um, I've got it in front of me. I would say 115 minutes of it has Jake Gyllenhaal's character. He is, I was going to no, say, I don't, I don't think you ever see any other characters on screen discussing him without him present, ever. So yeah, it there, almost there, is first person. Yeah, and, and well, that was the point I was going to make about the, it being first person as well. Is like, There's nothing that happens that he would not be made privy to. There's yeah. The only scenes where he's not in it, it is the producer talking to the her boss is nina talking to her boss and he's like hey i don't know if we're going down the right path with this whole lou thing but that in a first person setting is easily something that could be relayed to lou off screen because there's things that happen off scene because nina and nina and lou get together it refers to that like nina or lou starts going over to nina's apartment so there are things that happen to lou off screen that it refers to but again there's no bad talking about this guy behind his back that we're made privy to and again that kind of speaks to it being a first person story but man going back to just this not from a writing perspective but this movie this movie is 90 percent or so filmed in the dark like it filmed at night 
and it is done the lighting is done so well like you don't you don't you don't get lost in the shuffle of how dark any scenes are which i think is incredible and they use lighting so well like the shots of lou's apartment where they'll it'll be like a framing shot where it's total blackness in the apartment except on one the left half of the frame is the television with its glow coming off of it on the right side of the screen is lou with a single lamp over his desk and he's like taking notes from the evening news like they do so many tricks with light like that that are so yeah. well done um and even in all the scenes where he's out in broad daylight he wears like very dark sunglasses almost like he's like a creature of the night like that's his natural habitat um i i have to say like knowing that the budget was only eight and a half million bucks um you know jake gyllenhaal was not a no name in 2014 he was huge yeah Riz Ahmed was already a rising star. Um, Rene Russo was a known uh, a known quantity. Bill Paxton's in this movie. Um, this this must have been a great script for them to be all willing to probably take well below their usual rate to be in this film. Um, it also says that Gyllenhaal played a role uh, in the film's production, from choosing members on the crew to watching audition tapes. So very clearly, he was like. He read this thing and dove into this character, and it shows yeah. both from being that involved, which most people on the A list are not going to get that involved, even if they have like points on the movie. Like that's not something you typically see. And then it obviously shows in the performance. Where again, I I would say I'm I, I'm trying to think of other. I mean, Jake Gyllenhaal is a great actor, and he has a lot of good roles. Um, you know, he was coming. This was after he did Brokeback Mountain, which was kind of his like Oscar moment where he wins all these awards, but. Um, I would say I think this is I really do think this is Jake Gyllenhaal's best work. I, I struggle to think of another role where I'm like, that's a better Jake Gyllenhaal Prince of Persia performance. Oh, Sands of Time is a banger, dude. Sands Sands of Time is a banger. Yeah. Man. That would not have flown in <laughs> in modern America. We are we are past the uh Persian guy played by Jake Gyllenhaal era. That is, of, that's like the fourth Prince of Persia reference we've made in our like seven episodes of this pod. Yeah, I've never and I've never seen that movie. Like I need to, I need to sit down and wa- do myself the disservice of watching uh, <laughs> Prince of Persia. It ain't, it ain't pretty. That dog will not hunt, dude. They have so many. They have done so many terrible video game movies, and it's time. I tried to sit down and watch the uh, Assassin's Creed movie with, uh, uh, yeah, Michael Fassbender. Fassbender. Yeah, dog. Just who is he's a great actor. Yeah, he's a great actor. You have a lot to work with in the Assassin's Creed world. Like, I don't know, man. They just, they always seem to just get too many cooks in the kitchen on something like that, and it ends up being terrible. I'm trying to think of any video game movie I've ever seen that was decent. Mm. Not many. The Witcher's a good miniseries on Netflix. That's based on a video yeah, but that's, game, but that's it's also based on a, novel. a book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, man, I can't think of one either. Uh, speaking of that, they're making a new Mario film with, with Chris, Chris Pratt. Chris Pratt. I love the Mario-Chris Pratt memes. Keep people keep doing. Like he needs to do the voice. He needs to do the voice. Gosh, that's not going to be great. No, I dude. Who's who's asking for that? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. who is who's out here being like, we gotta have a. Oh, I'll give you a good video game movie. Tron. I didn't even know that was a video game. Yeah, very old, like eighties video game, like yeah. arcade game. I thought it was a movie, and then it became a video game. Which is, which I think is the best, because then you have unlimited license, right? Like, there's no characters or plot or anything. You're like, yeah, if you want to make a movie about Pac-Man, you have unlimited 
I mean, that would also be horrible. But yeah, you can do whatever you want because it's like there's you're not you don't have to aim for anything. Yeah, they um, could just they could was... just make an alien invasion movie and just call it Galaga, and they would get that much more people attending the movie, that much more budget because it's like writing off of the name Galaga. I heard the the Sonic the Hedgehog movie with uh, what's his name Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey was was fine for kids. I heard that ended up being pretty good. And Detective yeah. after Pikachu the after the internet bullied him into. Teams. I'm glad they did. That initial Sonic was terrifying. It had teeth. That was so creepy. It was that lives uh, in my I, nightmares. I I was like physically mad at not 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 like punching holes in the wall, but like I felt myself like clenching my jaw, being like. It, it makes me mad as somebody who is kind of operates in the creative space that somebody who's getting paid to operate in the creative space and probably getting paid really well would come up with that. I was going to say, product. not cheap, dude. Not cheap. Like, yeah. I, you know, I, I never know what that's about. Because, um, like, sometimes I can get it. Like, when, when Star Wars, like, when Disney gets a hold of Star Wars and they redesign everything, I'm like, okay, they did that because they want to sell new action figures, right? Like, they want to make they want new versions of all the ships and all the stormtroopers and all the everything so they can sell new versions of all the stuff but no one's going to go out and buy a action figure of sonic with teeth so like i cannot imagine why that was done like just just do how he should look and kids will buy that like kids love that stuff so yeah, yeah makes no sense they try to get creative with it try to get cute with it and it just looks oh so bad the highest rated video game movie on rotten tomatoes is the Angry Birds movie two. God, it's seventy three percent on Rotten Tomatoes. So that's that's higher than Gladiator. That's weird. Yeah, that Gladiator seventy one percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Weird. See that that's why we rate things by genre on this podcast because you can't compare apples to oranges or Angry Birds to Gladiators. I didn't understand until like I started became an adult because everyone I grew up with loved that movie. I think because the age we are, like that movie came out when we were like twelve, and so everyone thought it was just super awesome. And it won like eleven Oscars, so it was just like a an epic of our time. I've encountered all these people that like think that movie actually sucks. Like think it sucks. Yeah, and so that's I'm just not like, right. Damn, weird, dude. That's crazy. Like why? Like why <laughs> like i've got ugh, i would i, I mean i love th- that movie i think it's a i think it's a really good movie i don't know if it's an 11 oscars movie but no i mean yeah who knows what else came out there and a lot keep in mind 11 oscars a lot of that's like costume design Fair. visual effects set design all those things go into that russell crowe didn't win i don't think it got best picture so like it didn't win the bangers it just you know it cleaned up because it was like for its time, it was like Titanic as far as just like the set was crazy, the scale of it was enormous. Those kind of movies used to do really well. And it wasn't like at all historically accurate. There's a ton of plot holes in it, like the general that just beat Germania and is probably like being printed on money and Rome is able to like show up and no one recognizes him until he's like, I am in fact this guy. And they're all like, what? Like, <laughs> that's yeah, that crazy. Yeah, that not happen in ancient Rome. Also like... Why would Commodus decide? I don't want to get too far into this, but like, why would Commodus be like, I'm going to fight him one on one? Like, just have that dude get murdered, just murder that guy in his cell, and then be like, he's dead. That's it. Like, yeah. the Roman people would get over it, like, quick, yeah. quickly. Like, I don't, yeah. none of it makes any sense, but it's, it's fun. It's very fun. So, uh, before we get too deep into other stuff, Nightcrawler, any, any closing thoughts? I know we kind of just like really went through it fast, but. No, I mean, I would everyone go watch this movie. It's so good. It's the best. It's probably the best movie of 2014. I'm trying to think of what else came out that year that I would say 
would be better. Okay. Oh well, you know what? Speak of the devil. Whiplash came out in 2014. So yeah, is it's a top like three to five movie of 2014. It will be remembered as one of the best movies of that year. Um, absolutely give this one a shot. It, it's a great, there's, it, 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 the pacing's great. Like it pulls you in immediately and there's really no lag in this film at all. You're kind of like gripped from beginning to end. Yep. Incredible, incredible writing. It looks beautiful. I'm a sucker for a good, like gritty LA movie. I love like, uh, LA confidential and once upon a time in Hollywood. And I love all the, you know, since I don't have to live there and actually deal with any of the bad parts of living in Los Angeles, like the romanticized and or gritty version of Los Angeles is great on film for me. And so I love stuff like that. So this movie's right up my alley. I mean, let's just go down the checklist. It has very strong, well-acted protagonist or main character is probably a more accurate way to put it with this guy. It draws you in immediately, as you said, with the scene where he mugs the the guy who works at the the security officer all the way through the end of the film, there is no, there is not a single five minutes that lulls or that is not important. So the pacing is incredible. The dialogue is great. There's not a single moment of of telling instead of showing, right? Mm-hmm. They do a great job of subverting your expectations towards the end of the film. They don't give, they don't reveal too much information at the beginning. You're you're asking yourself the right kind of questions all throughout the movie. It is. It, it it brings up really important themes. And I was gonna say questions. it's a cliche to say, but it makes you think. This movie will like yes. make you think about like again, like as two people that probably do not skew towards like rip rip up the current system and throw it away. Like this will make you consider the dark side of the economic system we've chosen as like you know not just this is what we're going with, but like. You know, capitalism is at the very – it is practically the religion of the United States. And so mm-hmm. to see kind of like, oh, you know, it creates waste too. Like it creates a dark side. There are bad parts of this that you don't see every day because you've – you know, you live a certain – you live in a certain piece of the of that equation as well. Um, I think that's well, important. It, so it, it does something yeah, important. Yeah, I think, think what it that. does is it gives you a – you know, again, I will say the same sort of disclaimer that you did about – not we don't necessarily feel some of these same ways but when it comes to this this look into capitalism like your your characters of rick and lou it gives you a clear winner and loser of capitalism and what that looks like in terms of when you have two people that are down and out you've got you know are you going to be the victim or are you going to be the victor and lou does everything he can in his powers between manipulation and violence to be the victor where rick is unable to make those leaps and he yeah. ends up being the the loser and all yeah most definitely i, I do want to get into uh some other topics but let's 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 give this a rating what would you put this cool at? it's a strong nine for me um like i said it's it's one of the movies that like when i look back on the decade of the 2010s it'll be like on my list of like this is one of the 10 movies that i think you need to see from that era yeah i that's that's yeah. giving it a nine um, yeah, not for me. It's nine and a half. No, no weaknesses. Uh, it is. It's. I feel pretty strongly that almost anybody I can show this movie. Any any adult I can show this film to, and I know that th- they might not understand it. They might find that it's a little bit too dark. Um, yeah, but I don't think anybody wouldn't be entertained by it. Agreed. Agreed. 
dude, I have to say that I, I finally did get around to watching one of the shows that you recommended on this pod that we're probably not going to cover in a separate episode, but dude, I finally got around to watching Woodstock 99. Dude, oh, it's such a good documentary. It's, it's great. It's also it's long. It's like two hours. Yeah, but it's, it's worth it. Um, my God, dude, what a shit show. Like what a, an absolute shit show from the jump. Like it, I think it definitely just like made me, cause we were just too young to understand like what being a teenager was like in 1999. Like my memories of the nineties are very rose tinted glasses. Like pre the pre nine 11 world to me seems like imagination land. <laughs> like everyone was, you know, was rich. Everyone was having a great time. Economy's yeah. booming. America just beat communism. Like we are the good guys. Everyone acknowledges that we kick ass. And to kind of get a window into the underlying, like, undercurrent of anger that existed in kind of teenage culture at the time, and the manifestations of that were very interesting to me from a cultural standpoint. And then, oh my god, just like a fire fest to end all fire fests, just like oh horribly gosh. mismanaged, total disaster. Like, and I just love the lineup. The lineup makes me laugh so hard when I look at it that, like, it's. Not that it's not like they're losers or something. It's just funny how culture shifts to where, like, if you showed someone that lineup now, they'd be like, "This is the biggest lame fest I've ever seen in my life." Like, other than like yeah, a so couple guys that have maintained their l- prominence. Let's think about some of the names they had on there. It was like you had Creed, Alanis Morissette, Corn, Limp Biscuit, Rage Against the Machine, Metallica, Dave Matthews. I'm, I'm missing a bunch, but it, but every everybody else I missed kind of falls in line of that corn lint biscuit that they went very hard on the in in the documentary they painted it very much as like angsty white men music which that's probably fair i i would just kind of leave it more towards the genre of like 90s like dark alt rock right yeah so this is the so friday is cheryl crow fall and that's another thing is like a, a very particular crowd showed up to this event, which was like kind of the f- late '90s frat bro Limp Biscuit fandom thing, yeah. and they put acts on there that were good acts. It's not like that wasn't a good idea. It's just that like people that want to see Limp Biscuit will see Limp Biscuit on a bill and go. People that want to see Cheryl Crow will see Cheryl Crow on a bill next to Limp Biscuit and not go because Limp Biscuit's there. And so you end up with like a crowd very much dominated by one particular kind of fan. And so like Cheryl Crow was never going to have a good set at Woodstock right. 99 just because of the crowd. So there was three Friday's... female acts, three female acts in the entire, in the entire festival. Yeah, and like you said, they're sandwiched like... between these crazy acts that are nothing so, like them. Fr- Friday is uh, Cheryl Crow, then DMX. Shout out. Then the offspring, then insane clown posse, then corn, mm-hmm. then bush, then guster, and then uh, Saturday is Kid Rock, Everclear, Dave Matthews Band, Alanis Morissette, Limp Biscuit, Rage Against the Machine, Metallica, Chemical Brothers. Which let me tell you, bro, like late '90s, like rave culture was so crazy. Like that's before like the average person was into that shit. So I bet that Chemical Brothers set was fucking crazy, and everyone was like huffing balloons of nitrous gas and wearing giant Jinko jeans. Um, Brian Betzer Orchestra. I have, really have no idea what that is. Everlast and Rusted Boot, and then Sunday Elvis Costello Jewel. Uh, Seven Dust, Creed, Megadeth, The Red Hot Chili Peppers, closing credits. 
yeah it's crazy and by the end of the festival there's you know when red hot chili peppers is playing there is uh like people are lighting entire towers on fire pallets and and there's people that dude and just like just horrible like the the whole thing from the jump where they're gonna have it on this old air force base so it's like giant you know pavement they're gonna cook alive basically and then they're gonna charge like seven bucks for water like I, uh, you know, one of my very close friends, and you know him too, Grant Waring, um, he's, you know, been in the concert business for a long time. He works for uh, a company that got bought out by Live Nation two years ago, and so he's handled festivals of pretty huge size, um, you know, 100,000 people, and the logistics that go into a festival and providing those kind of resources so that they will have like clean bathrooms and enough free water so that people don't die and things like that are, are a huge part of the equation. Um, and I think they go into that in Woodstock 99 where they talk about like this effectively killed music festivals in the United States until Lollapalooza came around and started to like build a new yeah model. Well, coachella came out the next right year. yeah yeah it was actually coachella yeah they talk about that a little bit and coachella basically was like we're gonna do everything the exact opposite yeah. that and and did. you know coachella is not my scene it's like the uh, the influencer olympics at this point but like they have to their credit like done it perfectly like no one gets hurt at coachella it is very safe it is very accessible like they have enough of everything like people can camp people can there's a ton of accommodation they have medical staff they people they don't have mass arrests they don't have riots like they've done a really good job with festivals like that and provided a model for you know a thriving what once edm became popular in the united states we saw this huge revival in music festivals and for a while especially in the like mid 2010s there was like festivals everywhere it was crazy how many people were trying to launch a festival um, kind of culminating in Firefest, yeah, <laughs> like that was kind of the the high water mark of the music festival scene. Yeah, that or yeah, that was the low water mark. <laughs> and when you're comparing Woodstock '99 to Coachella, people were talking a lot on this in this documentary about the people they interview. Which, by the way, I did appreciate how they got they got people from all different backgrounds, walks of life, who were there, who were reporting on it who worked the festival to like give their perspective and they got a ton of different perspectives about why Woodstock was great, why it failed, all that kind of stuff. But one thing that just just kept resonating with me was they were all trying to figure out who to blame, you know, was it the crowd? Was it the, you know, uh did Limp Biscuit not do enough to like quiet the crowds? Did Red not Red Hot Chili Peppers not do enough to quiet the crowds? Like all that kind of stuff. But man, you look at the lineups for Coachella and you look at the lineups for woodstock 99 and you can't do like say hey we're gonna be woodstock and it's gonna be this massive festival where we have limp biscuit corn rage against the machine metallica back to back to back to back with another festival's day left like of course bad shit's gonna happen then right like i would imagine that an authentic jazz festival is probably going to have less arrests than you know heavy metal festival or a you know, hip hop festival, sure. right? Like just by nature just of age, of dude. Like the, teenagers do the dumb age shit. and the demographic, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Right. Well, and like I thought the dude the the whole like play by play of the Lint Biscuit set is my favorite part of the documentary where they go to Fred Durst and they're like, bro, you gotta, you know, it's kind of getting out of hand. Can you 
help us out a little bit. And he goes out there and he does his whole. And he's clearly a moron. Yeah, and he goes out there and does his whole like, if you got girl problems, if you got boss problems, <laughs> then you need to take that shit out right now, dude. Break stuff. And go into this whole thing. I was like, God, dude, this is so like incel energy to the maximum degree possible, dude. Like, literally right after they were like, Hey, we need this crowd to calm down like 20% and like not get any more riled up. He literally did that. And you're just like, this guy's such a dumbass. The fact that like, it tells you so much about where American culture was that like we made Fred Durst a superstar. Like Fred Durst was like the, the biggest star in American music at one point. And like, that is something I don't know if we've ever recovered from. It, it goes back to what we were saying earlier. Like this is what happens when art, art is a hundred percent subjective. You get books like 50 shades of gray. You get guys like Jake Paul or like the biggest internet stars. Like it's, sad and crazy well and and like when has the when has truly the best art been the best selling art you know what i mean like it's i think you'd be hard pressed to ever find uh a time when like the people that really are like have put their whole life and their soul into the study of a given medium agree with like the masses about their choice for people that live and breathe like quote-unquote hip-hop that are just like you know listening to underground mixtapes all the time and are all about lyrics and like preserving the art of hip-hop and stuff like dude they don't like drake i remember my dad talking all the time like when i was a little kid about how much he hated you know my dad was like a child of the 80s and you know loved van halen and like loved rock and roll still does and like dude i'm sure it just broke his heart to see like the limp biscuits of the world like slowly conquer the genre that he had like come to love so much and dude they killed it you know what i mean like that was kind of the last hurrah of like hard rock music being like pop culture's biggest phenomenon and then it went to kind of like the limp biscuity pop punk era and then rock kind of died like yeah you still have like some acts that are like quasi rock like the black keys or things like that yeah, I mean that that sucks to say, but like Imagine Dragons, you can make the case that Imagine Dragons is one of the biggest rock bands in the world. And like, man, how far we have come <laughs> or man. fallen or however you want to put it, but like, yeah, car commercial music is about the the pinnacle of rock music at this point, unfortunately. I, I have two people that after watching this Woodstock 99 that just were burned in my mind. One was the New York Times writer, I forget his yeah. name, but every point he made was like spot on. He just really, Yeah. He made so many great points, uh, so shouts out to him. Um, and then there was the two people that I just really irked me. One that obviously irked me the most was the guy who ran the whole thing or the main promoter. Um, who just like tried to like skirt responsibility the entire time Dude. and be like, oh, which I ran I, a great festival. Which I guess like maybe there's a legal reason to do that where like you don't want to sit there and be like, yeah, I caused all that heat exhaustion. It's my fault that, you know, all those women got raped. When he got to the part where he was like, like full, like confronting the rape thing and like kind of like acting like those chicks were full of shit, that really made me mad. Like I was like, you're a scumbag, dude. Well, what he said, so so what he said effectively was you take a festival of, and, 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 okay. Don't agree with him, but I see where he's coming from with this. He, his point was when you get a festival of 200,000 people a day and they're all of the same age, they're taking drugs, they're doing alcohol, there's all these acts out that are like obviously like pent up rage and you have people walking around topless or whatever, like there will inevitably like be somebody crowd surfing and somebody grabs a hold of something they shouldn't and things like that. I understand where he's coming from with that. And he, he points out like, there was only 10 reported incidences of sexual assault, but A, that's still, like, 
that's still not good. <laughs> and two, True. the point that other people make in the doc series was like, yeah, I guarantee you people in these sets were coming out having been groped or assaulted and like did not know who did it and maybe like couldn't find their friends and like you can't go fi- like you're not going to go file a report after that. In in the modern world, we have taken many steps to make people who have been the survivors of sexual assault and rape, you know, we have tried to do many things to make it easier for them to report and out there attackers than ever we ever did back then. We still hover somewhere around 5% of rapes being reported. Yeah. I mean, it's a very, like, shameful act. People do not want those things. Like, it, it takes a lot for someone to want to take that on because especially if it's, like, a big public thing, like, those people are harassed. Like, that happens without fail. We saw it happen with, like, the Baylor situation. This girl's got death threats because they threatened a football team. Like... So in 1999, when for sure nothing was going to happen about it, more than likely, like I, I guarantee you, if they, if Tenor reported, there were at least a hundred, like, and probably a thousand. Oh, we'll never yeah, know. more than so, that. I mean, dude, they're, yeah. they, they have. I mean, in this documentary, they have at least ten clips of a girl doing yeah. like flashing or whatever, and then a guy walks up from behind her and grabs her, and it's like, dude, what? Ugh. So yeah, so and I mean, I think it so goes shit. without saying that like just because somebody is topless at a music festival does not give you license to grab them. I feel like it's important to distinguish is like inevitably if you are half naked crowd surfing and people are holding you up, you could get grabbed, right? That's all I was trying to say. Sure. And but one thing I will say, I'll give I I am not a fan of their music and I think they're kind of weird, but Insane Cloud Posse has the gathering every year and a shitload of people show up to that thing and chicks walk around naked all the time. And they, as a community, have very done a very good job self-policing about harassment, gro- unwanted groping. Like, Because, yeah. dude, I mean... Yeah, I mean, Hippie Hollow in Austin. Like, you don't... J- just because yeah, people are topless absolutely. and naked or whatever, you know, it's a... Hippie Hollow is a nudist beach uh, on Lake Travis, I believe. Is it Lake Travis? Yeah. Right over by the... Uh, the what's Oasis. it called? Uh, the Oasis. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, ju- again, just because somebody is naked does not mean that they are automatically, like, asking to get groped or whatever. That's obviously not what we're saying. Uh, it's just worth pointing out that, like, naked, dumb, young people with alcohol and drugs, we don't take this lightly. We don't enjoy that it's a reality, but, like, bad things are going to happen, right? And uh, it was really unfortunate it, that... that uh, that whole festival just got so out of hand. The other person that I had to call out was Moby. Moby was like, dude, the entire yeah. documentary, he is like, he's kind of going across as one of these people who's like, yeah, I'm I'm a white straight male. And yes, I took advantage of this getting paid to go to this festival. And yes, I enjoyed it in the time. But here's what all the things why I knew in the time it was wrong. And just, he tries to separate himself from it and you have to remind yourself like wait you were there too you were an act like you were involved in this like he very much was taking the high road without earning it and it was super annoying he and he got way too much airtime yeah that's kind of moby shtick unfortunately yeah. i mean i don't know like i i don't pay enough attention to moby to care but like yeah i've from what i've gathered of him uh that's certainly kind of vibes with my knowledge it's of very moby, slimy so. but yeah it's an incredible documentary it's super worth checking out because it went down as like it's kind of an unknown thing to me. Like, I always kind of knew it as this big disaster of a thing. But, like, 
I didn't really know that much about it until I watched the doc, and it was super worth yeah, it. It was awesome. Really good doc, highly recommended. Um, especially if you have any, I think if you have any experience going to any sort of music festival, it will really resonate because you'll have seen just a microcosm of this, and just you'll be able to contextualize how bad Woodstock '99 was. So that's a yeah, I agree. Really cool doc. Well, uh, we've really kind of covered two different. <laughs> two different movies docs today andy uh yeah man this was awesome i was so glad we got to cover this and i was glad we got to talk about woodstock 99 i didn't know we were talking about that but it's awesome i might watch it again tonight now that we've discussed that it. fuego well as always if you like what you heard please like and subscribe to uh us on spotify as well as apple Podcasts, and give us a rating we really appreciate that but most importantly tell two friends we really want to get the word out again this is novel discourse i'm sam I'm Andy. And we'll see you next time. Peace.